So welcome everybody to a, a new season of Bible study. We, uh, we finished up Genesis before Christmas and did a, a few Christmassy uh, texts leading up to Christmas. And that feels like forever ago. <laughs> but now we're here to start another, uh, an another journey through another book of the Bible. And we decided let's, let's keep the story rolling here and do Exodus. So I know, I think we were talking before, Doug, that I've, I've never done a, a study like this through the book of Exodus. I, I think, I don't think you've ever taught through Exodus. No, I have not either. So we're going to learn together. Yeah, yeah, this will be fun. I, Exodus is a great book. Um, in I, I was saying before um, we went live here that in preparing for some of the St. Matthew and the Words stuff, um, doing some of those teaching videos that, you know, we try to keep to you know, under 10 minutes, like oh man we could go for for hours on some of this stuff and I'm, I'm getting all ready for bible study then doing that so looking ahead to, to some of the exciting stuff coming down the pike here with with exodus and i have to laugh because uh as a kid growing up i think we watched the ten commandments every easter that they showed it on tv so i have this this mental picture of the the story of exodus based on a TV show, essentially, or a movie. Um, and while it was somewhat accurate, it also gives you some interesting things that aren't in scripture, just like any movie. And uh, so, yeah, you kind of, you go back and you read the text and you got to erase some of those pictures that are in video, so. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, it's amazing how, how those images really get ingrained into our mind and, and we just think of that as scripture and I think when we get to some of those events of that movie uh, we'll find that maybe they're they're not quite the the image we have in mind uh, right so yeah that'll be that'll be fun as we get get towards some of that stuff uh, we should also mention too that uh, so Pastor Rob's not with us tonight and won't be for the next several weeks here because um, he's doing a new member class at this time uh, online doing a, a zoom new member class and um, I know he's got quite a few signed up in there, quite a few new folks who are part of there. So that's awesome that that uh, even throughout COVID here, we've picked up some some new folks here at St. Matthew who are ready to to take that step into saying this is my church home. So we're excited about that and and uh, happy for them. So Doug and I are going to take up the charge for a few weeks, and uh, Rob will join us here eventually. But and I assume as long as we're on that, we can also plug, uh, I don't know how many people watching this um, don't know, but that we are open as a church on Sunday. So yep. we are doing live church and communion. So live, live in person and online. Okay. And, and, you know, our numbers in, in person have been going up and our online numbers keep going up. So it's, it's kind of impressive that, uh, um, so many people are, are continuing to connect with us in that way. And I know that's been a, a huge, the online stuff has been a huge blessing for folks who aren't ready to come back. And the in-person has been a big blessing for people who are ready to come back. And um, I know I was saying last Sunday um, from, from where I was sitting playing organ at the early service, looking out across the room, like it actually felt normal. Like you couldn't really see the empty, because of the <laughs> angle of everything, you couldn't see the empty pews between the rows it like it felt full it felt felt comfortable it felt normal it was it was really kind of nice for a minute well we've been joining online ourselves because we were down in florida for the last two when or last two sundays so 
Um, yeah, we've been watching live online, so. Well, I see we're at our time here. So how about we start with a prayer and then we'll, we'll get into Exodus. Crack open a new book here. All right. You want to open with prayer, Pastor? Sure. Jesus, we come here tonight ready to listen to your word, to learn from your word. We pray that as we begin this journey through the book of Exodus, that you would speak to our hearts in, in new and fresh ways. Um, as if we are reading this for the first time, God, remind us of things that we may have forgotten uh, since we read this before. Uh, open our eyes to things that we missed on, on previous readings through here and help us to walk away with your truth. Um, that we can hold on to that truth in our hearts and, and, and um, focus on your love and your grace that's so abundant in this book of Exodus. Uh, God, we also pray tonight for Pastor Rob and for all those who are part of the new member class. Um, God, it's such a blessing to have people joining our church, uh, even in the midst of COVID and all of the, the many kind of negative things going on, you're still doing great things. Um, so God, help us to see that both in your text here and in the world around us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as we like to do with most books, when we start into a new book, there's always that question of who wrote it, where did it come when? from, <laughs> and when, yeah. When did it take place? So let's start with uh, the easy one. That's who wrote the book of Exodus. And I don't think there's really any question um, as to the fact that most of this is written firsthand by Moses. Um, you know, you say that, and, and I, I agree with you. Um, I, I agree that Moses wrote what we call the Torah, the first five books. Uh, there actually is a lot of debate on that, though, in Christian circles about who wrote what. Um, now, the reason I think that Moses wrote it is because Jesus says Moses wrote it. So if Jesus thinks that, that's that's word enough for me. Right. But, but in... In scholarly circles of people who take the text very seriously, there, there are folks who, who have different, differing theories on who wrote it or um, you know, who's behind the, the books and even the different parts of the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. Um, but church history, tradition, um, even the, the Bible itself refers to Moses as the author and that's that's who, who I believe wrote the book that we're reading here. And when you bring up the fact that Jesus does point back to Moses writing things, there it isn't a, he wrote everything, but he does say that Moses gave you um, this. So. Right. You know, I think, and this gets into, we, we could spend a whole, <laughs> a whole month of these just on the whole, like, um, inspiration of scripture and how the, the authors came to write it. You know, I think in our, in, in kind of popular imagination, we have this picture of the, the writers of the, the scripture texts that we have, like going in a room, lighting some candles and then like, you know, channeling God and just writing it all down um, verbatim as it came to them. Um, I, I don't think it's quite that clean, you know, um, Luke's gospel begins by saying, I investigated all this stuff and I talked to people and I wrote this all down and I researched it all. And, um, you know, others, the, the word of the Lord came to me. And, and so I, 
wrote it down and um, you know, it, it's not quite as clean, I think, as we, we might think. And when you attribute the first five books to Moses, it's like, we haven't even gotten to the point where Moses is born yet. So right. we got to remember that there was an oral storytelling of this is how they passed everything down in the beginning is everybody would memorize and would tell stories and would pass it on. So Moses's recounting of Genesis, which the whole book we just finished, clearly wasn't observation. It was the oral history being passed down to him um, and divine um, intervention. So, um, however, as we're talking about Exodus, clearly you have Moses giving firsthand accounts now um, once he's born here, clearly. Um, he hasn't been yet in what we're gonna read in the first few lines, but uh, pretty quick, so. Right. Um, now, in preparing for this, one of the things that I was not um, aware of is kind of a debate going on about the, the when this all happens. When, when in history, um, the events of the Exodus take place. Um, there's there's kind of two camps. There's an early date and there's a late date. And I think there's like a, it's only about 200 years between them. So this is this is one of those times where it's like, yeah, the, the, the people who take this stuff seriously really take it seriously. You know, it's right. not enough to say, oh, it happened about such and such, like we want to know. Um, and most of the scholars that I was looking at tend to come down with an early date. And the early date is, is 1446 BC. Uh, that's, okay. that's when they're looking at the, the date of the Exodus. Um, and that's because in, in 1 Kings chapter 6, when Solomon is building the temple, because there's no dates that are referenced here. Pharaoh is never named. Um, right. Uh, so it's hard to just by Exodus to pin it down. But in, in chapter six of uh, first Kings, it, it starts out by saying that in the 480th year after the people came out of the land of Egypt. So 480 years after the Exodus is when the temple gets built here. Um, and we kind of go the other way because we know that in Exodus 1240, it says 430 years is the time that they were in cap or in, in in Egypt essentially right so yeah and, and so we know we know really well when Solomon reigned we've got good historical records even from outside of scripture that that we can solidly date that and so then you count backwards and that's where they get to the 1446 uh, BC as the the date there um, but then there's wonder of is that um, the 480 in first Kings, um, are those like round numbers? Is that an exact number? You know, how do you, how do you land there? Um, and so it's, it's, it is really interesting when you, when you really start to nerd out and get into some of the, the weeds and <laughs> stuff that, you know, you may not think about in, in just a casual reading of scripture. Um, but there's, there are folks who care very deeply about the, the factual nature of what's here, who try to, you know, taking, well, taking it very seriously. And that's kind of comes from the fact that you're trying to line up both history books and the Bible. And very often 
when you put history books next to the Bible, you, you have places where it makes sense. However, the Romans, or I'm sorry, the Egyptians are not going to tell this story because it doesn't flatter them. <laughs> I mean, this is one of those where the next king to come along says, yeah, we don't really need to write this story of us losing all our slaves and losing, and it looks bad. So it gets left out of the record. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have a very modern uh, idea of how history works. Um, so when we're, we're recounting a historical event, you know, we tend to go for extreme accuracy in stuff, um, in, in all the little minutiae of details and times and places and stuff. Uh, you know, that, that wasn't always the case throughout history. And there, there are times where in history and, and like where we're reading at here, where, you know, a round number is perfectly fine instead of being an exact number, um, especially if there's some significance to that round number um, that go with that. And no one, no one's going to bat an eye. It's not like we're, we're whitewashing history or changing history. It's mm -hmm. just a view of how we're, we're writing that together. So sometimes we have to take off our, our very modern eyes as we're, we're reading this stuff and kind of think like an ancient person, which could be hard to do. All right. So we know who wrote it. We know when it was written. And one of the other questions you always ask when you're, when you're looking at Bible stuff is who do they write it to or why did they write it? You know, who, who's, who's the original audience of whatever it is I'm reading. And this might be a little trickier because, you know, when you're doing that with Paul, um, you know, Paul usually tells you exactly who he's writing to, the church at Rome, Corinth. Right. Um, but who's Exodus written to? Well, I think you've got to go somewhat with the, this is the history of the Israelites. I mean, it's very hard to, you know, yes, it is for all believers today, but the purpose of Exodus then was the history of the Israelites and this story of this is the, I, I don't want to, I guess I say the first salvation story um, since the flood, probably. Yeah, um, I think that's probably an accurate way to say it. In fact, we're going to, we're going to see, well, I guess maybe not tonight, but Next week, we'll, we may see some echoes back to the flood. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think it's Israelite history um, to some degree, but it's also a lot of the promises made that we talked in Genesis about the promise of, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we're going to be this great nation um, and we pretty much open Exodus with ties to where we left off in Genesis. Yeah, very much how we left off in Genesis. So, um, the first word in, in Exodus in the Hebrew, uh, which usually isn't translated in any of the English versions, the first word is and. Okay. So, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. So it's very much a, this is, this is meant to be a continuation of what you just finished in Genesis. Um, 
and that that comes through a lot stronger in the Hebrew than it does in the English. Yeah, my uh, NIV starts with these are the names, not and these are the names. Right, ESV is the same thing. So since we're since we're here, should we start reading? Uh, sure. First section there. You're gonna do like through seven. Yep. You want me to go ahead and do that? Sure. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So. So we got 70 here. The descendants of Jacob. But if you actually count up who's represented there, it's not actually 70 in the sons of Jacob. Because the 70 from Genesis included his two sons that, that died, Onan and um, Ur. And uh, we've kind of got the 12 tribes, right? Right. Because he's so. he has adopted um, Joseph's two boys, right? Yep. Uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. So it's it's kind of one of those examples of of um, those symbolic numbers. So seventy is one of those numbers of like completeness. So this is like the complete group of everybody who's a part of uh, Joseph's family, um, even if it's not literally seventy or exactly seventy. Um, it's the it is the complete group there. And we kind of get a promise that's being fulfilled here. And if you're going from roughly the 12 tribes and 70 some odd, probably 70 men who are being recorded with wives and children, um, that are the 70, 70 people. And now by the time we get to the end of verse seven, um, so numerous that the land was filled with them um yeah we we've got the we're starting to see the promise of your descendants will be more numerous than the sand and the stars right those promises to abraham now are coming true yeah not only did they multiply but they grew strong um, you know, so we've got a healthy vibrant nation that's coming here out of those 12 uh 12 individuals, those 12 descendants of Jacob. So clearly we've got, we need to go back a little to Joseph. Joseph is in Egypt because of the famine. Uh, so if you were with us in Genesis, you remember that Joseph went down to Egypt uh, by a very roundabout 
uh, a path and ended up second in command to that pharaoh. Um, the word pharaoh basically meaning the leader at the time. So um, you had Joseph with so much power that he has a whole delegation go with him when his father dies back to Canaan. And these are the important people in the Egyptian government. So there's, a, there's an importance to Joseph to where he's second only to Pharaoh at one time, yet there's also a bit of animosity because these people are the shepherds from an outcast land. And we get stories in Genesis where they don't sit at the same table as the Egyptians. And so they're, they're very, Joseph is in very high, held in a very high regard. Yet his family is still not considered on a par with the regular Egyptians. They're kind of the, the, the stepchildren, the ugly, uh, ugly stepsisters, I guess you could call it, of, of the Egyptians' uh, mindset here. So um, a little bit of, we don't, we don't get a lot of that up front. Um, we just get, they said they were shepherds and they're given a land in Genesis. So, but the fact that Joseph is so important keeps them safe. Yeah. And now we hear Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's quite a bit of time that is going to go by between the events of Genesis and where we get to in the next verse here in the next little section. Um, everybody who remembered Joseph and all the favor that Joseph had uh, both in, in Egypt and um, in Israel there, they're all gone. So knowing that, you want to take up 8 through 14? Sure. Uh, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The more, uh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay. So, you know, roughly 400 years has passed between Joseph and now um, the, the time where we're at here with a new king who's on the scene, a new pharaoh, um, who doesn't know anything about Joseph or doesn't care. Um, so he, as king, is not concerned about how important these Israelites are because that's all gone. Right. They are now a concerned. I'm sorry. They're now a national security threat. Right. If we're invaded. He's they might, they might team up with our enemies. And so we need to do something about this. 
And I like that it says that he, uh, let's, let's deal shrewdly with them. Um, and yet he doesn't know that he's unwittingly challenging God when he says that, because they're multiplying, which is exactly what God wants them to do. And God has promised them to do. And he says, well, let's, we got to stop that. And so now Pharaoh has put himself right in the, in the direct path of God. Yeah. From his point of view, as someone who doesn't know God, he's doing the King thing and right. saying, yeah, we, we, could, we can't necessarily fault him for what he's doing. Right. Right. He's being a very logical and intelligent King at this point saying, you've got a foreign people living in our land that if they sided with our enemies, even though we're pretty powerful, we couldn't take out all of them. They would outnumber us. So there, there is clearly a threat to his, his, like you say, national security here. Mm -hmm. If these people are allowed to uh, continue to multiply at the rate they are. Right. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the more, the more they afflict them, the more they grow. And it, and it, yes. is, it is almost a little bit humorous. Like, you know, God kind of saying, you think you're going to stop me? I'm, I'm, I'm going to help these people flourish because that's what I'm here to do. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. So they're going to try and solve a couple of things here at once is we're going to try and keep these Israelites down. And at the same time, we get free labor out of this deal. So the Israelites really are the truly now the second class citizen that is forced into labor. And yet they continue to increase. And we get a little throwback here um, in verse 14, where it, it's, it's a little bit weird when you're reading through it, that uh, they make their lives bitter in hard service. And then it throws in, in brick and mortar. When's the last time we talked about brick, brick and mortar? Was that the Tower of Babel? <laughs> That's the last time we heard about brick and mortar. Um, and, and also associated with the Tower of Babel and brick and mortar was spreading out. Right. We hear right before this that they spread abroad. They this this made them multiply and grow. Um, they became great, and uh, so it's like, ooh, is there is there some connections back to Genesis here? And um, you know, God God saying to the people who wanted to be great in the Tower of Babel no, you're not going to make yourselves great. And then he goes and immediately chooses some lowly guy like Abram and makes him great. Uh, here you've got Pharaoh saying, oh, they're getting too great. I'm going to push them down. And God's going, nope, I'm going to build them up. I'm, I'm going to raise them up and I'm going to knock you down, Pharaoh. So then uh, it says in uh, the middle of 12, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Right. Doesn't sound like they were the the most liked amongst the Egyptians. <laughs> yeah, thing, things are are turning ugly here. Um, in the in the little video that I did for the Saint Matthew in the Word, and I'm I don't have that the notes for that right in front of me here. Um, you kind of wonder, you know, so God God set this up 
you know, he, we saw that with, with the story of Joseph, that, you know, God worked this all out to bring Israel to Egypt. Um, you know, what, what uh, Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God used for good to save his family in the famine, um, to give them a home here. And now this has turned into this really bad thing. You know, we kind of wonder, so, you know, why did God bring about um, the, the slavery, the oppression that's happening here? And uh, we don't get really any of this from the scriptural text, but from historical stuff outside of scripture, we know that like the land of Canaan or the promised land where they're headed, if God would have just taken them, taken Joseph straight to Canaan, that land is just in upheaval right now as warring and, and uh, the people who are there battling with each other, the, the 70 people from Joseph's family would have been obliterated. They, they never would have made it, um, and yet they, they flourish here, and then when this turns south, then God is going to bring them out, and um, so it is a little bit of preserving them from even greater danger um, by having them here in Egypt where, yes, they are enslaved, but they are protected, and they thrive. Do we get any idea? I know it talks about them being in Egypt for 430 years to the day. Um, but do we get any idea of how soon or how long they are actually in this slave labor? I, I didn't find any. I don't believe so. I don't, I don't think we get any exact because all of this, especially before Moses, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, I don't want to say this, it, it's written like not necessarily anchored to a specific time. We're not right. getting a time frame. It's just sort of this happened while they were here. So do we have an age, and I probably should have looked that one up. Do we have an age on Joseph, right? For how old Joseph was when he died? Right. Um, Joseph was 110. Okay. I'm just I'm just trying to get a handle on how long it took for everything to go south here. Was he, he was, he was a teenager when he got seventeen. Sold. Was he when he got sold? Right. Yeah. Right. And how how long before he got into e to Egypt after Potiphar and all that? Was he thirty? Why does that? I think he was thirty when his brothers saw him. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, he spends a long time in Egypt and, and you've got quite a while with, with the family there too. Um, so but even if you say a hundred years for that generation to die out, that leaves you 330 more of before they get, they get out of Egypt. So there's, there's quite a few generations here of slave right. labor for the Egyptians. And I know the, the popular conception is that like the uh, Israelites are in there building the pyramids, but that's, that's not the case. <laughs> Israel didn't build the pyramids. Um, in fact, I think the pyramids were already in place at this point in time. Uh, oh. I remember right. Um, so the, the, the dates don't line up right for the Israelites to be. And I think that's kind of the picture that we get of like um, 
in Disney's Prince of Egypt, aren't they building the pyramids in there? I, I think so. The yeah. uh, Charlton Heston one. Um, you know, it's, so it seems like the that's what we have the Israelites doing is building the, the pyramids. Um, but that's that's really not historically accurate. And, and of course, it doesn't say that here either. It just says slavery. Right, right. So there's it a lot of have slaves doing. Well, it does talk about those two cities. Right. Pitham and Ramses. Which we don't know a whole lot about those cities, um, but they're they're named there. We kind of have a location on the map, but um, they're not super critical to the the narrative that's unfolding here. So should we go on? Yeah, let's go forward 15 through the end of the first chapter. So 15 says, the king, king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sapphira and when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because, of the, mid and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. When Pharaoh gave this order to, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So we go from slave labor now to this uh, king of Egypt showing his true colors. Is The only way we're going to stop these people is by killing the children. Right. Infanticide. Um, and we get the, the first, uh, uh, one of my commentaries here um, says the, the, the midwives defiance here, it's the, the fir history's first recorded act of civil disobedience uh, in defense of a moral imperative, which is kind of cool that that's, you know, civil disobedience shows up for the first time this early in scripture. And it's the choice of, do we obey corrupt government or do we obey God? Right. right. It is kind of interesting that, um, and, and some of the commentaries point this out too, that the Hebrew midwives, there's thousands of these um, Israelites out there and there are two. <laughs> we two midwives. And so, you know, they're kind of like, are these like chief midwives? Are these like, <laughs> like the heads of the department, basically? Uh, you know, who are these two? Because, you know, clearly there should be a whole lot more than just two for all of Israel. But for, for whatever reason, these two are, are singled out um, and, and named here. Um, that and I, their response is just so almost humorous is that Hebrew women are much sturdier than your Egyptian women. And right. 
they're just having babies before we even get there. So right. popping them out left and right. <laughs> and there's there is the whole you can go down that road of how easy would it have been for Pharaoh to have killed these two? I mean, that's almost what you expect to happen here is for this act of disobedience and their rather lame excuse is you could easily see a king who's angered killing both of them for their actions. Right. And yet we have in verse 21 there, um, you know, because they feared God, because they did what was right here, they didn't obey the government and, and go along with this, this morally unrighteous thing to do. God blesses them. God gives them families and, and those midwives grow, uh, mm -hmm. flourish and um, you know, all because of the hand of God there. But yeah, so it, he, it really so is, he, you kind of see that spiral of, of Pharaoh just kind of going out of control of, of oppression's not working, working them harder isn't working. We got to kill them. And, and, and now, you know, we just got to, we got to throw them all, throw all the boys into the Nile, um, you know, because the boys are the ones who are going to grow up to be soldiers or the strong workers, the ones who are right. up. Um, so we got to, we got to take them out. Yeah, it is a, it is a definitely a, a level of paranoia you see from Pharaoh going from there's too many to let's kill them. I mean, it's, it's not immediate, but it grows. Right. Um, so that's the end of the first chapter. And I think we're going to be well served to get into chapter two then. Yeah. Unless we've got anything else about chapter one. Nothing else that I have about chapter one there. So let me read chapter two through verse 10. Yep. All right. So now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, uh, took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Okay. So Moses is born. So he's born a Levite. What are the Levites? Well, at this point, they're nothing. 
<laughs> other than a child of uh, or descendant of one of the 12 sons um, but they, they're going to become the priests okay um know if we talked about this at all yet but that was not necessarily the the making of levites priest was not necessarily a um a blessing it was more of a curse <laughs> I don't know about it first, but it was well, definitely, it was definitely a duty. Um, yes, and, and it was something that they, it was um, a, a a duty that at times was a bit of a burden. That's probably a better way of saying it. But yeah, the sometimes it can be a curse. But might have thought that. But uh, so, a man of the tribe of Levi, which is Moses's father, and a Levite woman have Moses and mom hides him for three months so I don't know what how the how the law was being enforced um, I'm guessing any boy toddler that shows up is getting thrown in the river so she hides the boy for three months and says she could hide him no longer Right. And it's interesting that, you know, we, at the end of chapter one there, you know, there's all the stuff about killing all the infants and then we never hear about that again. Uh, that's never, that's not part of the story going forward. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's meant for us to remember that here. That's why she hides Moses. That's why she puts him, well, I guess at this point, he's just the child. Um, it's a little bit like watching the, the Mandalorian. We don't have a name yet. Um, don't spoil it. I know you're, you're, you're behind in the Mandalorian, so I can't even, I can't even uh, draw, draw the rest of that parallel here. Um, folks, we got to get Doug caught up on the Mandalorian. Uh, but here he's just the son. And actually, I'm, I'm scrolling here quick to find it. Um, one of the commentaries suggests what his name was because Moses is what, the, what Pharaoh's daughter names him, and that's an Egyptian name, Moses. Yeah. Um, and it, it, there's some rabbinic uh, tradition that names Moses something different um, from his, like his original birth given name. Um, but I'm not seeing that here yet. So I might. So he would have had a Hebrew name that his parents called him for three months. Right. And there is some symbolism to that name Moses here, but we'll get to that in a minute when we, when we get to that part of the, the text. So mom puts him in a basket. Right. And the Hebrew word for basket is the same as the word that gets translated as ark. Really? What Noah was in. Same word there. Um, you know, here it's translated into English as basket, but a, a Hebrew reading this would go, hey, I recognize that. And even the, the bitumen and pitch, I mean, that's part of Noah's instructions for the, the ark. Um, so we kind of have these two vessels that are meant to preserve life. Um, and it's, you know, maybe a bit of a, a nod to something new that, that God is do here, doing here, a, a new creation, a, a new act that he is doing among his people. Because, you know, for 400 years or whatever, we don't really have any, anything that God is doing right. with his people. We don't have any specific interaction from him, at least none that's recorded. Um, to his people Israel while they are in Egypt in this time. 
Um, and yet God's, God's up to something here. So an ark made for one is essentially what we've got here. Yep. And then she stations the older sister to keep an eye on him. Right. While the, while the Egyptian princess bathes in the Nile and, and, uh, some of the notes that I've got here saying, you know, it's probably, it's probably not the Nile proper. Like we think of the Nile because you got crocodiles, you got all sorts right. of things on there. Um, but the Nile has all of these little kind of riverlets coming out of it. Um, and they all, they, a lot of them, um, you know, kind of the way that the geography is around there, you have privacy for bathing. Okay. They're kind of secluded, peaceful little areas. And so, um, you know, the, the thought is that, you know, did Moses's mom even do this intentionally, uh, knowing that this is where the the princess is going to be? Um, is that why she chose this spot? That it's not necessarily just happenstance, but this is this is part of the plan being worked out here. So Pharaoh's daughter immediately goes to. This is one of the Hebrew children. So what is, she's defying dad in the same way, right? Right. Yeah, this, this is like very ironic here that she sees a Hebrew child. Um, and, and now the, the very, a very child that should have been killed because of Pharaoh's orders is now going to be part of Pharaoh's household. Um, and who's ultimately going to be the one to save all of these people. Um, you know, he really is the redeemer of these people right now. Um, at least the, the first or next redeemer character in the story here. And then so that's, you got that irony too of um, the mom is going to be paid to be mom. Right. <laughs> going to pay you to, to be mom to, the, to your own child uh, for the king. Um, so that's a pretty sweet deal. Um, and you have to imagine too, that, that mom's going to be taken care of through all of this now, because she's got the child that has been adopted by the, the, the princess. Um, so this is, this is going to set Moses whole family up to, to do pretty well here. And yet we get in 10 when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So we don't know how much older specifically, but mm -hmm. there is that point where now she's giving away her child again um, for her to be actually the son of grandson of Pharaoh. Then he gets named after he gets brought to Pharaoh's daughter, um, you know, after he's weaned from his mother, um, which I've, I've got a note here just saying that um, in, in the ancient world, because infant mortality was so high, um, yep. oftentimes you didn't name your child until after they were weaned uh, uh -oh. to do that. Um, and that weaning took place at a much later time than it would today. Um, The, uh, let me find that note here about the, the name. Um, oh, where'd it go? Um, 
So she names him Moses, which is, a, as we said, it's an Egyptian name. Um, and and when, she, when she names him, there's a little bit of irony there because she says, she's calling him Moses. And she says, it's because I drew him out of the water. But that name Moses really means he who draws out. So, okay. so he, she's, she's saying, she's naming him this and then saying, I'm doing the drawing. Um, but Moses by his name actually means he's the one who's going to draw people out. And it's sort of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen here. Um, Moses leading his people out of, uh, of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. So then we make a big jump. <laughs> right. We we get very little, just like very much like another redeemer. We get very little uh, about the the younger years. It's pretty much one day after Moses had grown up is how eleven starts. Right. So we go from he's a baby to he's a grown up. Right. With very little information or detail. Yeah, his, his childhood is is not significant to the the story that's here, which is another one of those like modern history, modern biographies. You know, we like to let's let's go cradle to grave here and cover all, all right. The, you know, right. Um, that's not what scripture's up to here. It's got it's got a bigger story that it's working out here for us. Do you want to read eleven through fifteen? Sure. So one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Okay. So we just skipped over the fact that Moses is essentially being raised and educated in in alongside the Egyptians so he's being taught to write and all the all the benefits of an Egyptian childhood so we kind of it's it's again one of those things that you picture from the stories um, from the movies too is you kind of forget that scripture doesn't say a lot about his his young childhood but he is more than likely getting the benefits of an Egyptian education, whereas none of the other Israelites would have had that. Right. He would have been very well prepared and well brought up as a member of Pharaoh's household. Um, you know, school, even, schooled as, as an Egyptian would be. Even right down to being familiar with what goes on in the throne room of a pharaoh, so. Right. Now, now Acts chapter seven um, tells us that Moses is about 40 years old when this happens. Okay. 
So there's a lot of time that's passed between right. the baby and now. Uh, but this isn't Moses as a as a teenager or a young adult, but he's 40 years old when this happens. And we don't even blink at the, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. So he knows the Hebrews are his people. Yep. And he looks this way and that. In other words, he knows what he's doing is wrong. Right. And he kills him and hides him in the, hides his body. So now Moses has gone from in, in less than a chapter from an infant to a 40 year old man to a 40 year old man who commits murder and hides the body. And clearly he was not as crafty as he thought he was in hiding the body because some of the Hebrews know what happened. Right. Well, and I find it interesting. I would imagine, I would imagine the, the Hebrew that was being beaten um, probably went and told others what happened. Right. He's not, that Hebrew is not killed. Right. Just the Egyptian. So interesting line in 14 where the man says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Is... Would you say that to any Egyptian? Would you? <laughs> I mean, that that right there is. Um, is that uh, I'm I'm seeing, I'm I'm seeing this, you know, fellow Israelite who the rest of us were all slaves, um, in a position of authority here, um, or a position of privilege in Pharaoh's household. Um, you know, you're you're no different than I am. Why, uh -huh. why are you doing this? Who, who did this? And, and of course, the answer to, to that very question is, well, God. <laughs> God set that up that he would be um, at, at least. So your your translation had that as uh, judge. Ruler and judge over us. Which... And so Prince is what e, the ESV has. Okay. Prince, prince and judge. And there is that irony again of when we get out in the desert, Moses's job is ruler and judge so yep. much so that he can't judge everybody. Right. And the Pharaoh here throughout the whole story here, it is a never named. Right. We don't know who the Pharaoh is um, 40 years ago when Moses is a child. Is it the same Pharaoh that, that hears about it now? Um you know, clearly, as we're going to find out in a little bit, it's a different Pharaoh from the Pharaoh who's over the, when, when they actually exit Egypt with all the plagues, that's a different Pharaoh from this Pharaoh. Um, so we, we just, we don't know, those details aren't given here in the, the text for us. But his reaction is, he's tried to kill Moses. Right. Because Moses has committed a crime. Right. Which... It only makes sense that if he's killed an Egyptian and he's known to be a Hebrew, that the repercussion here is going to be his death. Yet either God's protection or somehow he manages to flee. Right. And he flees and he sits down by a well. 
which don't we hear those words occasionally in Genesis of they, you know, Abraham or um, Jacob, you know, sits down by a well. Like that's a right. bit of a common theme there. You want to go ahead and read 16 through 22? Sure. Uh, now a priest, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of, hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Okay. Yeah, there's some very similar circumstances here to Jacob, isn't there? A bit. Now, Reuel later on is named Jethro. He gets a, a bit of a name change, um, but clearly he's the same person and, and he is the priest of Midian. What does that mean? Good question. <laughs> is he, is he a, and, and, and I don't have the answer here for this. You know, is, is, he, um, is he the priest of, is he a priest of Yahweh? Is he a, a priest of some other God? Um, who is he? How did he get to be a priest? Are we ever told? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I didn't look that far ahead. I don't have. I don't have that. I'll have to look at look that. A and neither do I. So that'll be one of our questions for next time. Is uh, do we know anything more about a priest of Midian? About his because because we know later on, you know, Jethro is part of the the people of Israel and their exodus. He believes right. in God. He, um, you know, he's the one that you just said about, about Moses being a judge and getting really overwhelmed yeah. by being a judge. He's the one who goes to Moses and is like, why are you doing this? This is silly. Um, you know, kind of basically bringing a word from God. You need to uh, involve other people in this endeavor. Or you're going to burn yourself out. Um, so, so at some point he becomes a counselor. Right. To and Moses. I, and, you know, I, I guess... Well, I'll have to do a little more homework on that and see if we know, does he become a believer in Yahweh or is he already a believer here? And is there something else going on? So stay tuned. All right. And then that last section there, um, 23 through 25 says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cries for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So... I find it interesting that in verse 23 there, um, their cry 
rises up to God. It's as if there's some distance between God and them in this time, you know, like, so, you know, are they, are they outside the, the, the presence of God? Is he far from them during this time? Is he removed from them? Well, it, it's just an interesting picture right, that it paints there with that. And you talk about, we hear very little from God in these 400 years, you know, the last time we've heard God speak to someone, but then at the same time, we hear very little of who are they worshiping? Right. Have, have they been loyal to God? We don't, we don't hear either side of, of that until here God hears their groans. Right. And really, I, I guess, you know, we'll, we'll get a whole lot more of this as we continue through the book of Exodus, but, um, you know, the people aren't pictures of faithfulness. Um, right. They, they are, can, even when face to face with miraculous things, with, with the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud right in front of them with God thundering on the mountain, um, they turn and run the other way. They, they forget God and they build a calf um, stuff. So it's like, man, these people are just so not faithful. And so you have to, you have to imagine at least a little bit that in this, in the 400 years that they're here, they're probably not perfectly faithful to God. They're probably worshiping some occasionally, at least some Egyptian gods or nobody at all, or who knows what. Um, clearly they still know that they're Hebrews. They still know their identity, but it, it gets a little murky. Well, that is probably a good place to wrap up. We're right at eight o'clock tonight. So I do have one question that came in just about just a couple of minutes ago while we were talking okay. um, from, from Liz Apple. Um, so thanks for, for writing in here, Liz. Um, and she asks, just kind of backing up a little bit about uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Is there any explanation to how Pharaoh's daughter got away with bringing Moses into the palace? <laughs> and why would Pharaoh have allowed that? Um, she says it must have been clear to everybody that Moses was a Hebrew. Um, you know, it's a good question. Um, the, the stuff that I was looking at preparing for tonight um, didn't really talk about the from Pharaoh's household side of it, there was some talk here of like the, the legal arrangement of, of having a wet nurse for an adopted child um, being taken care of, that there was, there was legal precedent for that in the, in the ancient world. Um, so like the arrangement with Pharaoh's daughter and Moses's birth mom would not have been an uncommon thing. Um, but as for how the princess got away with it, I, I'm not sure that we know other than maybe she just had dad wrapped around her finger and what, what daughter wants daughter gets. I was going to say, yeah, that's really the only conjecture you can do because scripture doesn't tell you why Pharaoh didn't go, go nuts when, when his daughter asked this of him defying his law. Right. But thank you for, for writing that in there, Liz. And a good reminder, too, that I, I know a number of folks I've heard from um, who don't necessarily catch this live, Bible study live when it's happening, but catch it on the podcast, catch it on Facebook uh, later throughout the week. 
Um, and so what we're going to try to do this time going through Exodus, there's, there's a couple of, of good breaks in the book of Exodus, um, kind of when, when Israel um, comes out of Egypt, when Israel's in the wilderness, and then when Israel is uh, at Mount Sinai. And so what we talked about doing this time was if you've got questions that come up, um, we'll kind of collect those, any that we don't get to live. So, so still send them in live. Um, but any that we don't get to live, we'll kind of collect those and then we'll, we'll kind of get to all of them um, kind of at the end of one of those big sections. And so you can, you can send us those uh, via a comment on Facebook. You can, can message that to the Facebook page. Um, shoot me a recording. We'd play your recording if you want to. Uh, if you really want to be part of things here. Um, and we'll kind of tackle all of those questions at like at the, the front end of maybe one episode there as we get towards the, the beginning of a new section. So we'll try that this time and see, see how that goes. But that's a few weeks down the road. So as we talk through their whole time in Exodus, which is going to cover all the plagues and all the way up to the Red Sea, um, as, as we talk about that stuff, if, if you got a question, uh, something burning on your heart or your mind that you want to know, go ahead and shoot that to us and we'll, we'll try to include those. All right. Well, why don't we uh, close with prayer tonight and uh, I'll uh, go ahead and do that. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time to talk about your word, Lord. And uh, we thank you for the picture of, uh, of Moses as, uh, as a deliverer here, Lord. We uh, give you thanks for uh, your son, Jesus, and uh, that uh, he was the savior that uh, took away our sins, Lord. Um, we often think about the uh, Israelites as uh, turning their back on you. And so often, Lord, we end up doing the same thing with our lives. And we give you thanks, Lord, that through your son, Jesus, that our sins are forgiven and that you've given us a new life uh, in Jesus Christ, Lord. We, uh, we just ask that you would uh, bless our time as we continue the study. Be with us as we go on our way this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. We'll see you all back here next Wednesday at 7 o'clock.